Now, everybody who hears my voice this morning has, been, has received a gift. Okay? Don't look under your chairs. I saw somebody look down like, where is it at? Everybody's received a gift. Everybody who hears my voice. Because at the end of this day, if you are still breathing, along with everybody else who's still breathing, you have been given 24 hours. You have been given 86,400 seconds. And everybody, the Queen of England, the President of the United States, LeBron James, Patrick Mahomes, Lady Gaga, your neighbor, your boss, the homeless person you see in the park have all received this gift. Unfortunately, time is not like money. You can't hoard it. You can't save it. You can't sock it away for a rainy day. You can't say, you know, this is a really busy season of life. Can I just take a couple hours off the end of my life and use it this week? It doesn't work that way. Be nice if you could do that. As he was reflecting upon the brevity of life, Jim Croce sang, If I could keep time in a bottle. And sadly, he died young while that song was still rising on the charts. We have a saying, time is on our side. We use that when you know, we're facing a situation and we look at everything involved and this and that. And we realize if, if we're just patient enough, if we don't, we, we don't give up, we don't try to make things happen, if we just wait, things are going to tip our way. Sometimes that's the case. But ultimately, time is not on our side, right? Because Father Time always, always wins. Today we are continuing a sermon series we kicked off a couple weeks ago, and, and we're looking at the Old Testament book of, of Ecclesiastes. It's called a wisdom book uh, because the, the author, Solomon, writes about his observations about life and how we are to live in light of those observations and so on and so forth. How can we live well in the midst of all these different things in life? And, and Solomon was the king of Israel. Carrie just said that a little bit ago. And he was the son of David, who was the most famous king in Israel's history. And what we know about Solomon was he was a very, very wise man. He was a very, very wealthy man. He was a very, very successful man. He achieved a lot in his life. And really, he could do whatever he wanted. He really had no limits on what he could do. Um, So he, in an attempt to find meaning and purpose in life, he tried it all. Because he could. I mean, most of us can't do everything. We have limits. But he could try it all. So he tried everything. He tried pleasure. He tried education and intellectual pursuits. He tried achievements. He built uh, civic projects, tried to establish a legacy. He tried wine, women, and song. He gave them all a go, and they all left him in the end dissatisfied, empty, wanting more. Thirty-eight times in this book, Solomon uses the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L, and, and Hevel, basically, it, it denotes something that's temporary, something that's not solid. You can see it. Maybe you can even smell it. Maybe you can even taste it. But, but you can't hold on to it. You can't, you can't grab it. It's, it's something, it's smoke. It's, it's, it's vapor. It slips through your fingers. It's gone. It's a mirage. You, and it just dissipates into the air around you. Now, the English word used to translate Hevel is the, often used the word meaningless, or, or vanity. That's how he began his, his book in the first chapter. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He goes on and on about everything being meaningless. Uh, other versions say vanity. Basically, he's saying, I've observed all sorts of things of life. I've tried to build my life upon all sorts of things, tried to find meaning and purpose in all sorts of areas and pursuits. And they're all temporary. They're fleeting. 
I tried to hold on to them and they just slipped through my fingers. It's a mirage. It's not solid or real. That's a summary of Solomon's thinking so far in the first couple of chapters. And given his observations and experiences about life and meaning, Solomon has advised us as his readers to receive life as a gift, to enjoy it, to eat and drink and work and to worship God and honor God. And you hear this theme over and over throughout the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. In the end, receive life as a gift, enjoy it, eat and drink, work, worship God. Well, this morning we come to the part of Ecclesiastes, which is, is the most famous. It's, we're going to read in just a moment. There's some verses that just about anybody has heard at some point. They may not recognize it as from the Bible, but they've heard this or versions of this. Let's pick it up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read through the first 15 verses, but the first 8 or 9 are the ones that are really going to sound familiar to you. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And then he goes on to say this. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on humans. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of humans yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for us to do than to be happy and do good while we live, that every man may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so we will revere him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before And God will call the past to account. Now, if you're a certain age or you like to listen to the kind of oldies, you know, songs from the the 60s. As I read through the first part of chapter three, a time for this, a time for that, you might have had a song running through your head. Um, It was written by Pete Seeger, a folk singer, and was recorded by the birds. And the chorus goes like this to everything. Turn, turn, turn. There is a season. Turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. That's the course. And in the verses, uh, Seeger goes on to, to use some of, some of this wisdom, ancient wisdom, this poetry wisdom that Solomon wrote. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to, to hate, a time to love, a time to make war, a time to make peace, and so on and so forth. And it's a catchy song. Uh, kind of a folk song, a kind of acoustic, easy listening, kind of a lazy day on a Saturday on the deck kind of song, kind of vibe. But I don't think that's the kind of vibe or tone that Solomon was trying to establish here. I mean, I think he wanted us as his readers to to kind of experience the depth of of their frustration and the angst uh, that he felt when he looked around the world and when he evaluated everything that he had done and everything that he tried. 
I mean, that's the majority of the mood of this book. I mean, if you're looking for an upper, this book maybe isn't it. Okay, that's why so many people find it sobering because it does not sugarcoat things. It it does. It's not in denial about the harsh realities of life. But I also think it's why it kind of resonates with a lot of us because it's it's interesting. It's provocative. It resonates because it's realistic. It has the ring of truth. Now, I was listening to a sermon by Michael Kelly about this passage, and he said it was helpful for him to think of, of Solomon's words in our everyday situations and languages and circumstances. So let's try this. There's a time for a healthy pregnancy. There's a time for miscarriage. There's a time when you enjoy your kids and they enjoy you. And there's a time when they're too cool and they push away trying to establish independence. There's a time when you're earning a salary and there's a time when you wonder if you've saved enough for retirement. There's a time when you're healthy and strong. There's a time when you're not. There's a time when you seem to have your whole life in front of you. There is a time when you clearly don't. There's a time when you're building a life and it's going well. There's a time when you have to start over. There's a time to make peace. There's a time to engage in conflict. There's a time to shut up and listen. There's a time to be assertive and talk. Now, you re- when you read it like that, we are inclined to say like Solomon, yes, hevel, smoke, vapor, meaningless, vanity. The clock is ticking. Time is marching on and we cannot stop it. We cannot slow it down. We cannot save it for a rainy day. And that's true on the big picture, the macro level, but it's also true on the, on the micro level, right? Because let's think about this on the micro level right now. You've chosen to spend this particular moment in time doing this instead of something else. On a big picture level, it's this. This moment is soon to be gone. And depressingly, but truthfully, you and I are one moment closer to death. Exciting stuff, you know. Can you imagine Solomon when he was writing this? Uh, maybe at dinner table. Hey, hey, honey. Well, he had been a lot of honeys. He had a lot of wives. You know, hey, honeys, you know, you know, or, or hey, servants. You know, come around. Uh, let me let me try this out on you. I've been writing this. Enjoy the meal. You are one meal closer to death. What do you think? You know, kind of tough stuff. You know, part of our relationship with time is that I, I think is that we are so often reactive in our use of time. I know that I can be that way. You know, we come into a season of life. Circumstances happen. And how do I adjust? How do I respond appropriately and wisely? You know? I was talking to a friend this week and her parents are both in their late eighties. Both are experiencing health crises. They require a lot of their attention and time and travel, finances, emotional resources. And so she and her siblings are having to step in. They're in a tough season of life. Earlier this week, I was talking to a friend whose kids are young adults. He's around my age. His kids are around my age, my kid's age. And he's trying to, trying to find that balance between giving them advice based upon what he knows of them. I mean, he knows them really well. He's their dad, you know. Sometimes parents actually know something. And what he's experienced in life. And he's trying to balance that with kind of giving them their space, letting them figure it out, letting them, you know, adult. Every week I talk to people in different seasons of life. Cancer and chemo. Just starting a family. Trying to find a spouse. Just engaged. Just divorced. Just retired, grieving the loss of a loved one, changing jobs, changing towns. In a sense, we are we are victims of time. 
Now, I, we can be proactive to a point, right? I'm not advocating just being super passive and everything's random. We have no influence at all on what happens in our lives. I'm not saying that. We can be disciplined. We can make lists. We can set alarms. We can set goals. We can establish priorities. We can set our calendar. So when I say we are, in a sense, victims of time, I'm not saying that we have no choice regarding our use of time. Quite the contrary. The scripture tells us to use our time well, to count our days well. But time, it brings new challenges. Turn, turn, turn. There's a season. Turn, turn, turn. Life changes. Turn, turn, turn. And through the seasons of life, we realize just how little control we truly have. We don't like to think of it that way. We want to establish some control, and so we do things like we... We put on a seatbelt, we take vitamins, we see the doctor and dentists when we're supposed to. We get insurance, we try to invest for our future. We try to, to spend quality time with our loved ones. We try to exercise some control over our lives and futures. But really, how much control do we have over the seasons and circumstances of life? It might be spring for you, it might be summer, but winter will come. It's not going to always be summer. It's not always going to be Spring, fall is coming, winter is coming, the clock is ticking, our life has an expiration date. And something within us, it yearns, it rebels against, it pushes against this, that there has to be more, there should be more, that this cannot be, this is not right. Does any other species on earth feel this way? I cannot prohibitively exclude the possibility, but I sincerely doubt that my dog or yours or a bird or an earthworm or a fish or a cow or a horse has the same sort of angst, the sense of something beyond life. Is there something more? I don't think they have those experiences. They don't have this consciousness that only human beings have. The scripture speaks of it as as a soul, Right? And because of that, we want to understand and find meaning in life. But we're, we're, we're trapped within the constraints of, of time. We, we know, we believe, we want to believe as Christians that God has a purpose, but we sometimes don't have a clue what that purpose might be in this season of life. Walter Kaiser Jr. says we have a deep-seated desire, a compulsive drive to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world and to discern its purpose and destiny. I believe that's what Solomon is pointing to here in Ecclesiastes 3, where he says in verse 11, God has also set eternity in the hearts of humans. In other words, we know that we were meant for more than to live inside the constraints of time. This is what C.S. Lewis would say about this longing inside. This is what he did say, quote, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. Lewis described this this sense of yearning, this eternity in our hearts as, quote, the scent of a flower not yet found, the echo of a tune not yet heard, news from a country we have never visited. 
You know, I think the problem we have with this, 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 this eternity that we have within us, we, we think of eternity like a line. It's linear, right? Time is linear. And so we think of eternity, there's this long line. On one end of the line, there's, there's this arrow pointing to the left. That's, that's eternity past. Everything has happened in the past. And there's this arrow pointing at the other end of the line to, to the right. It's, it's eternity future. Everything is going to happen and will be in the future. But when we look at the scriptures, eternity is escaping from that line entirely because that's the arena in which God dwells and does his work. God is not bound by time. God created time. God is not a victim of time. He doesn't have to react to time. God created it. He's beyond it. He's in control of time. And God's time and God's timing is perfect. This is why, for instance, in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus called the Lamb of God slain before the world was formed. Or why Paul says in Romans 8, he looks at Christians and uses terms like, we are sanctified and glorified in the past tense, even though we know that these things for us happen in the future tense. That's because for God, outside of the constraints of time, these things have already happened from his perspective. Kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, God's very name points to this reality. God's identity is beyond and above and before time. For example, when, when um, God talks to Moses through the burning bush, and God says, go to the Israelites, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses says, when I go to the Israelites, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am the God who is, always has been, always will be. Not the God who was born, not the God who will die. I am not the God who will be. I am the God who is. So what does that mean for us when we're told that we're created in God's image as human beings, that we have eternity in our hearts? It means that we there's something in us that wants to get beyond the time and the brevity and the vapor-like existence of life. And to do that, we must look to the God who is above and beyond and outside of time. And something really cool that Ecclesiastes does here is that it points us to the purpose that God has in and for time. When we read the Bible, we see this used over time for this, time for that. But there are two words that are often used for time in the Bible. One of them is, is chronos, like in chronological, you know, um, there's a set point in time. There's a sequence of points in time, chronological. They're in order, like on a watch, it's linear. What time is it? What chronos is it? But another word used for time is kairos. It's not used for a specific time, like on a watch or a clock, but it's used for a, a special time, the right time, a convergence of events and circumstances, whether through history or relationships or society or whatever, for a specific purpose. We see this in the scriptures, where Paul writes about how it was the right time, the time was right for Jesus to come to earth. It was the right convergence of history and, and the Roman Empire and the Israelite people and the Jewish people, all these things converged. It was the right time. It was timely. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but eventually there was something called the Septuagint, a little history lesson for you. And it was translated, a translation of the Old New Testament in the, in the Greek language. So, that, you know, you didn't have to know two languages to be able to read the Old and the New. It was all translated into the Greek, which was the language of the time. And the word used for time in Ecclesiastes is not chronos, it's kairos. It's the sense that there is meaning and purpose behind all the seasons of life. 
It's not just a point in time. It's a convergence of, of events. Even though they're dark and difficult or daunting, God, from his perspective, in his Kairos time, he's moving, he's directing, he's shaping through all these seasons of life. None of them are outside of his control. So God's time and timing is both perfect and sometimes, often, it's beyond our understanding. So the question here really is, do you really believe and trust that God is active and for you in this world? For those of us who are Christian, we say, yes, I believe, or I want to believe this. I try to believe that. Hard to do sometimes, but I want to believe that. But are we practical deists? You know, a deist, they, they would be those who would say, God is a cosmic clockmaker. He exists. He wound everything up. He just lets it run, hands off. Now you're on your own. Observes it from afar. Never gets involved. But the scriptures reveal a God who not only is the creator, but a God who is constantly working, constantly involved, a God above time, a God of Kairos time. And like Paul says in Romans 8, 28, he takes all the circumstances and events and happenings of life in this incredible, mysterious way. And he and he works it all together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Solomon has the Old Testament version of this when he says this in verse 11. He, God, makes everything beautiful and it's time. Same idea. Same statement. In its time, in the right time, in God's time. So you see, Solomon's beautiful poetry that Pete Seeger turned into a hit, sung by the birds, it's not only an observation on the inevitability and uncertainty and frustrating aspect of life with its changing circumstances and seasons, But Solomon's words are also an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, of God's control, and it's also a statement of faith in God's timing. Do you trust God like that? Whatever the season of life is. Well, when you fall in love and you get married, you're like, hey, God worked it all together to bring just the right person. We were meant for each other. It's easy to believe that then. Or when your child is born and they're healthy and you bring them home from the hospital, yeah, God worked it all together. When you get a job, you get a raise, yes. But when you get cancer, or your spouse walks away, or your spouse dies, when there are family relationships that are strained to the point of you don't ever see them anymore, do you believe that God is in control, that he has a plan? That he's working in your life and through your life and for your life in his time and in his way. You know, today you're going to be going home and I don't know what's going on in your lives. Most of you, I know a little bit, but I can't know everything. There's no way. You don't know what's going on in my life. Honestly, a lot of you, you know a little bit here and there. We pray for each other. But I guarantee that we have questions. Why did God allow somebody to die before his or her time? Why did God allow this person to get this disease? Why did God allow this person to struggle with this mental illness? Why did God allow, fill in the blank, in your world or in the world around us? We all have questions. Here's a few takeaways. If if you get what I'm saying in this passage, then you will know that there's a time for everything. And you will not be surprised by different seasons in life both good and bad. You'll be prepared for them. 
doesn't mean they'll be easy, but you won't be caught off guard. Another takeaway. Because of this, you'll realize that you are not in control. You never were. Which saves us a lot of worry and, and emotional energy. Martin Luther was friends with Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon would occasionally worry too much. He was a bit of a worrywart. In one particular situation, Luther chided him and said, let Philip cease to rule the world. It's, it's kind of a relief to know that we're not in charge. We don't have ultimate control over a lot of the things that happen in life. We're not responsible for it all. Another takeaway. When we realize that God is in control, then we understand it's our job to honor him. Luther said this, It's none of our work to steer the course of providence or direct its motions, but to submit quietly to him who does. There is a king, in other words, who reigns, and you and I, we ain't it. Another takeaway. We're going to have questions, as we already said, but don't obsess with them or become paralyzed by them. Some of your questions will not be answered, at least now. But just because we don't have answers for them now doesn't mean that there aren't answers. And we can rest and trust in the knowledge that, that we were made for more than this and that God will one day set us free from the problems of our world and of the constraints of time. Another way, takeaway, circling back around to this theme that Solomon hits like a drumbeat over and over, enjoy life. It's a gift. I began by saying we each have a gift today. 24 hours, 86,400 seconds. Enjoy it. Receive it from God. It's uncertain, so enjoy it. Eat, drink, work, love, honor God. So, let's bring it home. What is to be our relationship with time? What should be our attitude? What should we do in the different seasons of life? The Apostle Paul says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, for the days are evil. And I think we read this and we think, some of us, we focus on the be very careful. You know, like, tiptoe through life, be really careful, avoid the moral minefields, don't get your hands too dirty, keep the jersey clean, stay above the fray. But remember Jesus' parable of the talents? There are three servants and the king says, I'm leaving for a long journey. Uh, I'm not sure when I'll be back. Or you, don't, you don't need to worry about that. So he gives them each some talents, basically money. He says, use it well. I'll be back. I'm going to want to hear what you did with it. Two of them invest wisely, get a nice return. The king returns and he commends them. One of them decides to play it safe. Be very careful. Doesn't do anything with what he's been given. The king comes back and he is condemned. So playing it safe and tiptoeing through life can't be what is meant here. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. There it is. That is the key. We are to use our time, our talents, our treasure, our testimony for God, for his redemptive purposes. We're to bring healing, to create beauty, to foster forgiveness, to bring about justice, to point people to the salvation that is offered them in Jesus Christ. To, to, through our actions and our words and our values and priorities, share the good news of the gospel that despite the fact that we are all sinners deserving condemnation, God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on, on 
our, in our place on the cross and to wash us clean through his shed blood. And then he rose again so we can experience that which we all yearn for eternity with him in a place where there is no more time, no more yearning for things not of this earth. So practically speaking, what does this look like? Our confidence in God's activity in the world will be demonstrated by your activity in the world. So you'll go through the seasons of life and you will trust that God has a perspective that you don't. You'll trust that God is at work. You'll trust that God loves you. You'll trust that God makes everything beautiful in his time, even the horrible, ugly, incomprehensible stuff in seasons of life. And then that confidence in God's activity in the world will lead you to being active, being wise, being intentional, using the gift of life, making the most of every opportunity. So for you and me, it is always the time for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given us, the gift that you've given us of time. Lord, we help us not to take it for granted. Help, it, help us to use it wisely uh, to take this precious, precious commodity and to use it for you, to take every opportunity to use it for your purposes, to bring glory to your name, to point people to the, the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are with us through every season of life, that you're above time, that you created time, that you're in control of time, and that you are are working to converge all the different things that happen in our lives and our world and in your time everything will be made beautiful we offer ourselves to your name Lord Jesus Amen